welcome to the Low-Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology and the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. So today we are talking about the history of archaeology. Uh, it's one of the more lectury days. I do have some questions, and the more you uh, participate with that, the more fun all of us have, I'm sure. Um, but it's a bit more lectury today. Uh, hopefully in future classes we will be moving on to a little bit more interactive type of stuff, as interactive as I can make it um, while still getting across the information. You'll notice today that the lecture is only complementary to the reading. We do go over some of the same things, but a lot of what you read today will be for your own benefit. It won't, or course it's all for your own benefit but we won't be going over it in great depth today we're not going to talk about the classical age or the renaissance or anything like that um, while it's all interesting and good that you've read it and um, we may have a question or two about that later coming up um, you'll notice that this is a bit more focused on archaeology specifically so today we're going to talk really briefly about what anthropology is I know that some of you have had anthropology Um, really briefly what anthropology is, for those of you that haven't had an anthropology class, and then we'll talk about how archaeology grew out of antiquarian treasure hunting. So uh, anthropology, or does anybody have a burning desire? Any of the new folks, have you guys had it? Cultural anthropology or general anthropology yet? Okay, that's fine, just curious. Um, anthropology is the study of people in all times and places. One definition, I'm sure if you had general anthropology, they might have had a slightly different definition, but in general, anthropology is, a, is the study of people in all times and places. Anthro from, oh, door's locked. your last name, not your first. Bazo, yep, that's it. Yep. Thank you. Welcome. Glad you came. All right. So uh, I was just saying anthropology is the study of people in all times and places. And from anthropos, or person, it's Greek. Uh, not going to be on the test, the derivation of anthropology. But anyway, um, anthropology is an umbrella, uh, an umbrella study of four fields, although often you'll only learn about three of them. Uh, the first is cultural anthropology. Cultural anthropology is specifically interested in looking at living people and their culture. Living people and their culture. And many times we think about Franz Boas or um, Malinowski or any uh, Margaret Mead is another famous anthropologist. And you often think of them studying some far-off tribe in an isolated island in the South Pacific. And that certainly was a very common way that cultural anthropologists learned about different groups of people and their cultures, but today um, anthropologists, cultural anthropologists will study people just down the street. Um, there are famous studies of people embedding with um, thieves who work in urban areas or um, 
groups of prostitutes or drug dealers or all kinds of different uh, segments of our own society. So it's not just isolated tribes that are getting the attention of cultural anthropologists these days. Then we have physical anthropology. Physical anthropology is the study of the human body. So it's kind of the, uh, it involves both evolution and how we've evolved to become the upright, chatty apes that we are. Um, it also looks at the human skeleton and its morphology. Excuse me. And many times within physical anthropology, we also find primatology. Um, primatology, really, I think it could be its own field, but they don't really separate. They keep it within physical anthropology. It's the study of um, primates. As we are primates, we are looking at our closest um, evolutionary cousins to learn about how they interact and how they build a society and have their own form of culture and what that tells us about ourselves. Um, but yeah, physical anthropology, mostly dealing with bones. Linguistic anthropology is the kind of, I guess you'd call it the neglected stepchild of anthropology. If you've had general anthropology here, I think you skip over linguistic anthropology. Sometimes linguistics gets its own department in universities. Sometimes it gets put into modern languages. So it's sometimes separated out. But technically speaking, linguistic anthropology is studying language. It's change over time and what it tells us about our own culture. The words we choose to use, how we speak, these are all clues about uh, our culture. For example, this is not my normal speaking voice. If we were just hanging out, having a drink, I wouldn't be talking like this. And I always get in trouble at home when my wife says, don't use your lecture voice when we're having a conversation. It's not good. Um, she's a lawyer, and I'm a, we say she's a professional arguer, and I'm a professional know-it-all. So we have a lot of good discussions at home. Um, anyway, so the final uh, subfield of anthropology is archaeology, which is the study of peoples and cultures in the past. Study of people and cultures in the past. Archaeology is the study of people and cultures in the past. That's really just a breakneck, really broad overview of what anthropology is and its four subfields. Um, and we're going to be spending the entirety of the semester looking mostly at archaeology, but that doesn't mean the other ones aren't important. Uh, we don't have as much information about linguistics unless we have written systems. But uh, language and the transmission of language, the change of language, are all important to archaeologists. Physical anthropology informs archaeology uh, by telling us about the health and diet and other, um, other aspects of the actual physical body of uh, people that we find are in our, the archaeological record. And cultural anthropology is really just the modern version of what we're trying to do. Or, better said, archaeology is the reconstructive past of cultural anthropology. We're trying to not only understand the people and places and when they existed and what they did, but why they did it and understand the culture behind the things that we find left over. So if we break the history of archaeology down into five parts, um, we're going to go through these so you don't have to get them all sketched out right now. And also, you can find this PDF of this lecture on Blackboard, so you don't have to scramble to write these all down. Um, and this is how I break them down. Some other scholars break them down slightly differently. Um, and just in case there's any worry or confusion later, 
uh, the history of archaeology part one. There is no part two, so you're not missing anything in the notes. That's just a slight joke uh, related to the history of the earth part one, which is a wonderful movie. If you haven't seen it, it's a little old. Okay, so we're going to break it down to five periods. The speculative period is the first, and the main question of that period is what? Right? They're trying to understand what they're looking at. Is this uh, arrowhead a elf stone? Is it uh, from where lightning strikes and that melted the sand? Or is it the spear point from an ancient person? Right? But what, what are we looking at? That's the speculative period. Then we'll get into the classificatory descriptive period. And that's where they have a bit of an understanding of what it is. Okay, it's a, it's a, a stone tool. It's a, not a lightning strike or an elf stone. Uh, but what are we dealing with? What culture is this? Things like that. Then uh, we move into the classificatory historical period where we try and put those things. Now we understand what these artifacts are, what these cultures are. We put them into order. Eventually, uh, by the time we get to the 1900s, we get into the why phase. All right, we have a fair understanding of what we're looking at, when we're looking at, but now we need to understand the culture behind it. And then we get into the modern period, which we'll probably not get to today. Um, this will be subsumed into the uh, much later lecture on theory in archaeology. So that's an overview of what we're going to look at today. So in the speculative period, which I would call 1492, kind of a red letter uh, or a red number date in history, to 1840. And of course, you can quibble a little bit, but that's pretty good general um, span. And it starts with, obviously, the quote-unquote discovery of the New World. And of course, I'm sure all the, oh, we don't know how many million, but 10 to 50 to 100, nah, 10 to 50 million people living in the New World would have been shocked to discover that they had just been discovered, because <laughs> they've been living here for quite a while. So um, if we think about that, when the two worlds met, how did non-Europeans fit into the Eurocentric worldview could you imagine or remember from the reading if you if you've uh, done that anybody out there have an idea how did Europeans fit into the Eurocentric the non-Europeans fit into the Eurocentric worldview Sure. Um, so at this time, people were certainly aware of stone tools. Um, they might not have known exactly what they were, but imagine their shock and surprise to find people in the New World using things that are very similar to these ancient tools, right? Um, at the time, you also have to think about uh, colonialism and religion. So the Europeans were all Christian. Yeah, I heard it. And then the, the non-Europeans were all non-Christian, yeah, themselves, whatever, uh, non-Christian, right? And so, of course, at this time, one of the major, at least public, drives towards uh, colonization was Christianization, uh, or spreading of the European way of life, right? And so, what, I don't it's not that common anymore, uh, but back in the day, people were really interested in the lost tribes of Israel, um, as the... Some of the tribes of Israel had been scattered across the world. Uh, people started to look for them. They were basically taking the Bible as a 100% uh, um, uh, 
historical text that is 100% unimpeachable, and so if everything in the Bible happened as it says, for example, Noah's Ark or other things, uh, then we should be able to find these lost tribes of Israel. So that would be one example of how Europeans fit the uh, non-Europeans into their worldview. They basically had an existing world, and if you think about it as a square, and they meet all these other people who are maybe a round peg. They're trying to fit that round peg into the square hole, which is actually the backwards way that you're supposed to do that analogy, but okay. Um, one of our favorite characters, I guess, from this period is James Usher. You may have heard of him in science classes. He was an uh, English bishop. I uh, lived from 1581 to 1656, not that you need to memorize the date. Um, he was the one who counted, not that I'm, not that you're required to have read the Bible, but uh, it is pretty commonly talked about in the Bible. There is a whole series of so-and-so begot so-and-so, and so-and-so begot so-and-so, and so-and-so begot so-and-so, often the place where people stop reading the Bible. Um, James Usher took uh, the Bible as a narrative, and he added up the years. And he calculated back that the earth, based on the biblical um, chronology he created, which he tied then to the later uh, New Testament dates that matched up with Roman dates, which then matched up to common dates that he had. He was able to calculate back that the earth was created, so the seven-day creation story, was created on the 23rd of October in 4004 BC. That's the day, apparently, right? So one of the driving difficulties that people had in putting everybody in archaeological context was at this point, the world was only known to be 6,000 years old. Or we just passed 6,000 years old. At that time, it was like 5,000. Uh, the date for... I don't have the date he calculated. He lived in the early 1600s. He was living in the early 1600s. Um, and he calculated that date at that time. So, And even today, you can find people, um, if you Google like young earthers, um, that's a, it's, there are still people um, who take the Bible so literally that the earth is only 4,000 years old. And we'll talk about when and how that idea fell out of favor in the scientific community. Or young earth, we'll hear that too. Um, it was also around this time that, for example, in the 1800s, um, the uh, forces of France were expanding under Napoleon and they went to uh, Africa and started encountering the Egyptian pyramids and the Egyptian ruins. And of course, Egypt had been known since before Roman times as a very old uh, and historical culture. So it wasn't a real discovery, it was a rediscovery and starting to appreciate it as a historical sort of um, package. Um, today, let's see. Boop, boop, boop. We see a lot of amateur collectors at this time, people on their property starting to dig up old mounds, trying to get in and see what's going on. So a lot of, let's see, talk about Jefferson. Yeah. Okay. So Pompeii was discovered in the 1500s. Pompeii is a small town outside of, uh, I think it's, how many miles from Rome? Like 70 miles from Rome? I might be misstating that. It's not far from Rome. Um, and in the back, you can see 
a hill, which is uh, Mount Vesuvius, which is actually a volcano that erupted um, during the apogee of Rome and covered this town with ash. Very well-known uh, archaeological site. It was found again in the 1500s when they were excavating a canal. Um, and so this kind of started to spur the beginnings of what we might start to recognize as archaeology. People would go out um, and just start digging around this old buried town for fun, um, finding things before we had a real scientific sort of focus. Uh, one of the first major uh, advances, or I guess the, the father of American archaeology, uh, could be considered Thomas Jefferson. Maybe you've heard of him, third president of the United States. Um, and he excavated a mound on his property and took notes um, and noted all of the burials and the uh, material culture or the things, the artifacts he found, were very similar to those used by Native Americans. And he put two and two together saying, oh, these mounds that we're finding everywhere might be related to the Native Americans, which some other people also had known, but he was one of the first to actually go about an excavation and link it with living people. Doop, doop, doop. Just making sure I got everything. Yeah. And then near the end of the speculative period, um, in the 1800s, we start to get a change in worldview. Um, and particularly, we're talking about the age of the Earth, and we're going to go into old world and old humanity and evolution. So one of the important people who helped this bring about this sea change was Charles Lyell, um, who lived, uh, again, you don't have to remember these names, I just are the numbers of their, uh, their uh, dates of birth and death. I'm just giving them to you kind of as context if it's helpful for you. Um, 1726 to 1797. Uh, he was a British geologist, and he wrote, um, and he wrote Theory of the Earth, and he noticed that when you look underneath the Earth, there are layers, layers like a layer cake. Um, and he was able to argue successfully that each one of these layers represented a new deposition of soil that becomes lithified, turns into into stone. Um, so if any of you have ever dug into the ground, you saw that really dark humic layer, the really um, organic layer at the top, and then a, a lighter layer, and then probably a lighter layer below that. That's stratigraphy, and we're going to talk about that in some detail later on. But James Hutton was the one to realize that these layers were laid down in a very slow and long process. Um, and those processes couldn't have happened in 6,000 years. So he was starting to crack that egg or that shell. Charles Lyell, also a British geologist, um, 1797 to 1875. He wrote a book called Principles of Geology, which uh, introduced the idea of uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism is not, it sounds like some sort of um, culty religion, but it's not. Uh, uniformitarianism is the idea that principles that are at work in the past are still at work today, which to us sounds like, well, duh. The um, principles at work in the past are still at work today. Geological principles. Geologicals at work in the past are still at work today. The idea of things like erosion. We can see erosion happening today. Well, it's safe to assume that erosion was happening in the past. And again, 
duh. But uh, it was important that it was stated and then that was a foundational principle that people could then build on. You couldn't say, for example, that all of these, uh, all of these uh, strata that uh, James Hutton had identified were somehow put down in a couple of dates because we don't see that happening today that that couldn't have happened in the past, right? So it kind of tied uh, James Hutton's ideas together. Uh, and so kind of obvious question, how might an older date of the beginning of the earth change the interpretation of early archeologists? Like, what they thought they were completely wrong? Sure, um, I mean, well, no, it's it's not wrong. Um, imagine, imagine across the whole world, you're finding all these ruins, right? They're exploring. They're going through uh, Mexico and Guatemala at this time, finding all these um, Maya ruins. They're finding ancient Egyptian ruins that they're talking about, right, in the early 1800s with uh, Napoleon. There are more and more ruins being found, and even in Europe, they're finding all these arrowheads and these uh, much older. Mm, these much older Paleolithic sorts of things, although they wouldn't have called it Paleolithic yet. Um, and they had to shoehorn them all into 6,000 years of history, right? So this really just kind of like relaxed that pressure. And now, oh, we have lots more room to deal with. So it kind of gave them a, a lot more room to breathe. Um, Boucher de Perth, and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't speak French, um, so I'm sure I'm butchering his name was a uh, Frenchman, a customs inspector actually, who lived in the 1800s, um, 1788 to 1868 to be specific. Um, he was one of the first to show that these hand axes, this is a stone tool, um, were human made, number one, and number two, although he wasn't the first to say that, he was the first to conclusively show that people had been around much longer than expected, right? Because he found these stone axes in layers that were so deep that they couldn't have been recent. And he was able to push back the age of human beings to the pre-biblical date. And you'll see this bifurcation. Sometimes science will make an advance, um, and we'll talk about this with evolution, where people will say, okay, fine, maybe they're a little older than 6,000 years old, but people are still 6,000 years old. And then, you know, along comes Boucher de Perth, and he's able to show, well, actually, we find these stone tools, and they're buried so deeply, they must be older than 6,000 years old. And he pushes the antiquity of people farther, farther back. And he was denounced and ridiculed until the 1860s, when um, a couple others were able to corroborate his evidence. And that brings us to Darwin. Um, Charles Darwin uh, was born in 1809 and lived to uh, 1882. And of course, we all know him as the uh, progenitor of the uh, theory of evolution, which he had adapted from a few that had come before him, um, or evolved from a few before him. Uh -huh. uh, and again, Darwin's basic idea of the survival of the fittest wasn't necessarily as controversial as we think it is today. When he came out with the... Um, that concept of, you know, the, the fittest individual will survive and pass on his or her genes, and therefore the offspring will be more similar to that individual, and from those offspring, the most fit one of those will survive, and so on, and that's how um, nature might push on a species to change, to grow, to adapt. 
that wasn't as controversial because, you know, he's living in an agrarian country. And farmers know, like, oh, you don't breed the mean bull and expect docile offspring. You breed the docile bull to get the docile offspring. Or you like the one with the red spots. You breed the one with the red spots, right? So this, that idea wasn't, like, as controversial as when he came out with the origin of, um, or the descent of man, which was his later book. And that's what caused a lot of problem because he said, all right, here are the rules for evolution. All animals are subject to this. And everyone said, fine, more or less. And then he said, okay, well, we're, we're animals and we also uh, evolved, we evolved out of uh, other primates. And then everyone got upset because, oh no, we're human beings, we're so different. Um, so it wasn't actually the evolution itself, it was the connection of that with human beings. Boop, boop, boop. Um, any thoughts on how Darwin's theory would upend the worldview of early archaeologists? Specifically, what we would now consider to be archaeologists? Anybody? Yeah. I guess uh, since uh, they were discovering like how the layers of soil were much older, mm -hmm. and uh, they were discovering like, bones and that stuff, they mm -hmm. kind of linked both of those subjects together. Mm -hmm. Especially now, and you, you might you wouldn't know this yet, um, they were finding things that looked kind of human, and they weren't really sure are they human or are they um, ape, and they would say, oh well. Right, so that, that would be one thing um, they would link together. And as you said, they, as they're finding older and older human beings, uh, they're having to kind of shoehorn them into, well, they're not really modern humans. They're not quite like us. And so Darwin's theory um, may be useful. Now, one way that his theory was taken, and we'll see this coming up, and kind of abused was he's talking largely about physical traits of animals, right? We grow smaller teeth and bigger brains and opposable thumbs and things like that, right? Well, then there's social Darwinism. Has anyone heard social Darwinism? Seen a couple nodding heads? What's that? Anyone remember outside the class? I know it, but I don't know if it's Right, so it's taking survival of the fittest and putting it on groups in society or individuals in society, um, from, usually from learned behavior. So it's saying like, oh, um, rich people are better adapted because they're doing better in our society, so we should let the rich breed more and the people who aren't doing as well, we should make them breed less, right? That would be a social Darwinist sort of idea, which obviously is not, um, not really accepted in any polite society today. Uh, but this is the beginning of where it was adapted from a a theory that was largely based on physical traits and changed into one of uh, social traits. Uh, there's tons of uh, comics about Darwin, and we're not going to uh, have time to get into them. Um, Christian Thompson is well known because you've used his idea without ever knowing it. He's the one who came up with the idea of the three-age system, which is uh, Stone Age, Bronze Age and Iron Age classifications. If you've ever heard of the Stone Age, this is the guy that formalized that. He recognized that stone tools came before uh, bronze tools, which came before 
iron tools. Again, a lot of this stuff seems duh to us, which is good that it's um, gotten so much uh, distribution in, you know, in the common knowledge, but this is where it came from, Christian Thompson. Um, it was a step forward, and it was the beginning of putting things into chronologies. So you could say, well, I found stone tools, so these, this must be a very, very old deposit, whereas this bronze deposit, even though I can't put them directly together, I can, I can probably infer that one is older than the other. And this brings us to the next phase, the classificatory descriptive period um, from 1840 to 1914. And here we get into cultural evolution, like I was alluding to or explaining before, and the mound builder debate. So at this time, and we'll talk about who came up with it, we have the idea of unilineal evolution. Unilineal evolution. This is the idea that there is a beginning and an end to evolution. Or at least, at least, maybe not an end, but an arrow that points in one direction. And everything is evolving from one point, aiming at that final point. Where there's a spectrum, and you're going from one end to the other. And this is going to be, going to play a big role in colonialism and racism. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, the mound builder debate was one of the first ways, or one of the first public discussions about North American, Native Americans and their relationship to the remains on the land. By this time, by the late 1800s, uh, many Native Americans had been pushed west or into reservations or um, had um, died out. Uh, and so people were actually debating about all of these burial mounds, you know today burial mounds or house mounds, um, that were spread out all over the Mississippi Valley. And some people thought they were built by all matter of people from the Lost Tribes of Israel to uh, Chinese explorers, Phoenicians, which were uh, seafaring um, trader peoples of the Mediterranean before Roman times. Uh, some people thought they were Hindus because they were still clinging to the belief that somehow North America was connected to India or there had been Hindu explorers, which was also a popular idea. Uh, some people also thought they were Atlanteans. Um, you know, so people from Atlantis, the idea of Atlantis, some people were still clinging to the belief that the myth of Atlantis was actually describing no uh, North and South America, and that was Atlantis. Uh, if there was the concept of aliens at the time, I'm sure they would have thrown aliens in there. And um, you know, I will lift the curtain a little and say, as an archaeologist, uh, we're supposed to tell you that aliens and Atlantis don't exist. But you know, shh, I'll tell you the truth later. Um, so uh, another, just pictures of different mounds here. We have Monk's Mound. This is outside of St. Louis. It's one of the largest, or the largest mound, earthen mound in North America. Uh, well, north of Mexico, of course. Um, and Serpent Mound. I believe that's in Ohio, but I could be wrong. Um, so Squire and Davis are the protagonists in this debate, and they were really debating whether or not these mounds were built by descendants of or excuse me, ancestors of uh, modern Native Americans, or if they were built by some completely disappeared uh, race, which is the term they would have used at the time. And so 
they went back and forth in public, and eventually, uh, thanks to work from a guy named Samuel Haven, we were able to pretty well nail down that these mounds are definitively the product of North American Native Americans. That changes things because in the public eye in the 1800s, right, you're dispossessing a lot of a large group of people, you're pushing them west, and wouldn't it be a lot easier to do that if you thought, well, these people that were moving away, they haven't even been here that long. There were clearly some other people here before them. Now, if these people were here, maybe we'd have trouble dispossessing them and pushing them across. Well, turns out these people have been here for, these people, Native Americans, have been here for thousands and thousands of years. We don't quite know how old yet, but we will soon. Um, and back to E.B. Taylor, who, or Tyler, sorry. He was one of the chief proponents of this unilinear evolution. Sorry to jump around like that. I should put those in a different order. Um, E.B. Tyler came up with another thing that you've probably used, or at least have heard of, maybe not used, uh, the idea of um, savagery, barbarism, and civilization in that order. He argued that people or cultures advanced from a state of savagery to a state of barbarism to a state of civilization. And these were different states of being, and there was a one-way arrow pointing from savagery to civilization. This is, again, the unilinear evolution model. And this is also talking about behaviors. Usually, everything that made you a savage, or a barbarian, or a civilized individual, were behaviors. Like eating at a table with a knife and fork, or knowing how to write, uh, knowing complex arithmetic, right? These are all things that would mark somebody as civilized. Wearing lots of clothes and being putting starch in your collar, I suppose at that time would also be in there. Um, at the time, uh, how might, if, from what we know about world history in the late 1800s, we know that this was a huge time of uh, colonialism. And obviously, the idea of savagery and civilization uh, become a big part of that. Do I have a... Yeah. Um, at the same time, we have um, the rise of some of the larger institutions that we know today, like the Smithsonian. I mean, look at the... Did anyone uh, watch the inauguration today? This is the Smithsonian. Like, look at the mall in Washington. It looks like... There's like this castle out in some field, right? It looks very different than today. Um, but the Smithsonian Peabody Museums and other major institutions were rising up and becoming important in archaeology and supporting archaeology. And even the mound builder debate was um, connected with these different... Okay, I'm not going to talk about Cyrus Thomas just for time. So uh, back to you and your evolution for some reason. I'm bouncing around today. Sorry about that. Um, how would unilinear evolution fit into colonial narrative? I said it did, so spoiler alert, but can you think of how uh, this might justify colonialism? Yeah. It would kind of make them assume that they were there. Oh, yeah. And do you remember the name of that job? It has a very un-PC name. White man's burden, that's right. Poor us, speaking as an old white man now, I'm not. Poor us, we have to go around the world and become rulers of all these countries 
just to drag people's kicking and screaming into civilization. Obviously, that's a caricature. I don't think that. I just want to make it clear that I'm, I'm inhabiting the uh, role of somebody who believes that that's the case, right? So yes, obviously, if you are of the worldview, and this is like the scientific view of the time, that we, I guess if we're all here with laptops and think we would all be considered civilized, we uh, are at the top of what human beings can achieve, and everybody who's less than us, well, we need to take pity on them and just make them be like us, because then they'll be happy. Because obviously we are all just so happy. Um, it was one way to justify colonialism. Um, now, you can argue about whether that was a true, um, was a true justification or was sort of a rationalization for maybe something that was driven by more economic means or more economic um, uh, pursuits, right? You can debate which was the driving factor. I'm sure there were certainly people, um, especially missionaries and others, who had true zeal for raising the standard of living, I guess you'd call it, of um, people they considered to be living in abject poverty and terrible things. Uh, but then there were also plenty of colonial administrators who were, I mean, they were nasty. They were saying really nasty things, like at the time of the uh, Irish potato famine, the person who was in charge of the famine relief said, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is almost a direct quote, it's the Irish's own fault, because uh, they were Catholic at the time, remember, for having so many children and not thinking about you know, where they're going to get fed from. It's their own fault, and whoever dies, it's God's will. So there were certainly people that were you know, absolutely trying to you know, help people in their context, but there were also people who were just kind of jerks. And you have to think at the time, England uh, had a huge empire um, and sat on top of the world, right? Uh, the sun never set on the British Empire was a phrase because there were colonies that were literally in the day and all around the world. Um, in 1914, Europeans controlled 85% of the world. England alone controlled 20% of the land and 25% of the population. So. It was all tied together. Um, and if you think about even today, we have reverberations of colonialism in archaeology. There aren't, let me come up with an example. So I, I'm, I did my dissertation work in Mexico, and I lived in a small village called Popola, and I lived in like a thatched house with like tree trunks. Eh, there are small trees, like, but walls made out of like still trees like with bark on them and that's where I lived and I did my work right there aren't people from that village or any type of equivalent coming here to the United States and doing archaeology on you know early American colonialism or early American uh, Western expansion it's almost always people from westernized industrialized I guess you'd say first world back in the Cold War, you'd say first world nations, going to other places to do archaeology. And we also do archaeology in our own backyards as well. But it's almost always somebody from that today, uh, upper echelon of countries, going and doing it elsewhere. It's, and often, if you go to the archaeology conferences, there's a lot of white men with beards and plaid. Uh, and then there's a growing number of white women. And then now there are growing numbers of people who are non, 
uh, of people of color, not white people doing it too, but it's, if you segregated it by age, you would see a very, a very white block in almost all the age groups. It's only now that we're starting to diversify a bit more. It's, it's hard to say that archaeology isn't tied or uh, deeply steeped in early colonialism. Uh, it was during this time of empire that archaeologists really started to work um, across the world in a recognizably archaeological fashion. So call this the age of discovery um, or exploration. Uh, and a lot of the people that I'm going to talk about next are uh, were military ex-military people who had lived in um, colonies and done excavation. For example, um, General Augustus Lane Fox Pitt Rivers, which is one of the more kind of ridiculous names. Um, boop, boop, boop. Pitt Rivers was a military soldier, and he used very precise methods and was one of the first to develop plans, sections, models, and other recording devices that we still use today as archaeologists. So again, uh, coming from colonialism, coming from um, the military, which is a pretty common theme. Uh, we have, so, um, so we have some of his drawings and excavations here. You can see the detailed nature of his plans. Uh, Sir William Flinders Petrie, um, in the late 1800s, he was a meticulous excavator, and he tried to keep things in their context. Instead of just taking like a backhoe and like ripping out a whole mound and then sifting through it, he would go down layer by layer, not quite to the level of stratigraphy that we're going to talk about later, but uh, he was able to then show the change over time that uh, what we call seriation, we'll talk about that in a couple of days, um, that uh, earlier pottery, middle pottery, and later pottery uh, existed in a chronological context, which is going to be really important for the next um, phase of archaeology. And then this uh, somewhat debonair kind of movie star looking guy, at least early movie star, uh, is Sir Mortimer Wheeler. He's a military soldier again. Um, he directed excavations in India, and he was one of the first where you would go there and, you know, I show this picture here, and it's obviously <laughs> like super colonial with, you know, all the linen, uh, the linen uh, Europeans and the uh, turbaned natives like ex doing all the work and the guy in the pith helmet over here just kind of watching and, you know, here we have, yeah, it's very colonial looking. But also, you see these squares, which have become one of the hallmarks of archaeological excavation is putting squares on the ground and digging them up in squares because that gives us a lot better uh, aerial control. And we'll talk about how and why we do that. But uh, it's basically the equivalent of, remember like when you were a kid and you get those draw this face thing and it had the boxes over it? That's basically all we're doing uh, in a much more uh, time consuming and difficult fashion. We are using this grid to help us keep things straight in three dimensions. But uh, Sir Mortimer Wheeler was kind of the driver of the development of this grid square excavation. All right, so all of these advances in technology, archaeological methods, bring us into the classificatory historical period, 1914 to 1940. Um, we see a number of things that we're able to start to do because we have a more refined understanding of the past. 
we link, this is when anthropology and archaeology kind of get bound together, at least in North America. In England and other uh, European countries, depending on where they are, anth uh, anthropology and archaeology are kept separate. Uh, in England, for example, archaeology is seen almost more of a sister pursuit of history. Um, and social anthropology is something else. Here in the United States, we had folks like Franz Boas. And Franz Boas, um, born in 1858, died in 1942, was German. Even, uh, even as a German, he was known as the father of American anthropology. Uh, Franz Boas developed or championed the four-field approach. And I earlier laid out the four fields, cultural, uh, physical, linguistic, and archaeology. Um, he saw cultures as existing in a timeline, in a continuum, and you can't just go into a culture and be like, oh, what do you guys like today, without thinking about their history, right? Um, so he was able to link archaeology and modern cultures together. Um, he was very critical of unilinear evolution and helped to break that down. Uh, he was also a prodigious field archaeologist, or excuse me, a field anthropologist. He went out. He wasn't like a lot of these, if I go back a minute and look at Sir, Sir Mortimer Wheeler and Flinders Petrie and some of these other people, especially once, uh, maybe not them so much, but once you get really far back, you start to get into what are called armchair anthropologists and armchair um, archaeologists who kind of sit at home, read a lot of books, and then kind of come out with these ideas. Not that I've been guilty of that uh, sometimes. Okay. So he helped uh, bring about what was called the culture history approach or the cultural cultural historical approach. Um, again, this was putting people in their culture in context, in historical context, using archaeology and history. Um, so studying patterns over time. Um, and if instead of just coming in and looking at a culture and saying, what do you like today? If you know what they were like, 10 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, and then you know what they're like today, you can start to see changes. And this is a big difference. Instead of just like looking at uh, cultures as if they're like a static portrait, now we're looking at them for change over time, and change over time is really important in archaeology and cultural anthropology because when these cultures bump up against each other, little bits break off and they go from one to the other, and they, you know, sometimes one culture squishes another one or one gets squished by another one, right? So these different interactions cause change. And so what Franz Boas and others at this time are starting to realize is, hey, we need to understand this change. And so we start in archaeology, the effect is getting things like this really complex chronology. And this is out of um, the Middle East, and we have uh, the debate, oh, and note on this chart that the deepest and the oldest are at the bottom, and the youngest and newest are at the top. That's really typical in archaeology because this is how we find things. The older things are below, the newer things are above. And so here we can see, you know, in northern Iraq, southern Iraq, central Iran, western Iran, and the Levant, we can see the different cultures that come in these different areas at the time. So you could ask questions like, okay, how did the North Ubaid? in northern Iraq interact with the South Ubaid because we know they're at the same time. So by putting, using those archaeological methods developed by the people in the last period, 
we can then put things in context, and then we can ask about how they're interacting. Maybe they're um, sharing ideas or in conflict. We can start asking more interesting questions rather than, hey, what's this stuff? Oh, this is neat. We can start asking about them as people. Um, I know we're just about out of time. Uh, today, we also split North America into the, pretty much the same ecological and cultural zones that Boaz did. Uh, I'm not going to have time for the uh, AAA debate, so I'm going to skip the AAA debate. And we'll... Ah, I'd like to talk about them, so I'm going to pick up with A.V. Kidder and uh, V. Gordon Child at the beginning of next class, and then we'll jump into um, the next period after... Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll probably spend five or ten more minutes on the intro to, arch intro to the field of archaeology next uh, time, and then we will jump into uh, field methods and things like that. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.